Everybody turn to Psalm 106. 106. I think I counted how many of these we've done. I think we've done 51. So, even though this will be our last psalm for a while, we've done a third of them up to this point. That's been an encouragement. Um, I'm not going to read all of this psalm. I'm not going to preach through all of this psalm because it's a lot. Uh, I'm going to preach to verse 23, and yet I want to read verses 1 through 23, and I also want to read verse 45 because um, even though I won't be covering the latter half of this psalm, really the main theme of the psalm is in verse 45. And so I'm going to read Psalm uh, 106, verses 123 and verse 45, and then we'll consider this psalm together. If you're able to stand, uh, I would ask you to do that as we consider the fact that God has spoken to us, his people, um, through his word. Psalm 106, starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all his praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Verse 6, we have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of his enemy. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left, and then they believed his words. Then they sang his praise. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. When they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram. And a fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb. And worshipped a molten image, thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wonders in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him. Let's go down to verse 45 of Psalm 106 and once again... Though we aren't covering this part, this is the main theme of this text. It says, And he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you again in prayer through Christ. Lord, we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and enlighten our hearts and our minds. Lord, we know it's the Holy Spirit's role to do exactly that for His people, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive. 
the word of God. So Father, we ask that you would do that for us now for the good of our souls and for the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you know this, but one of the most often repeated phrases in all the Old Testament uh, is that our Lord is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Over and over again, you will see that theme in the Old Testament. God says it about himself. I am the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I I want us to stop right there and note that that in itself is good news. It is. Because if he wasn't, if God wasn't slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, if he wasn't, then every person in here tonight would be dead and damned for all eternity. In fact, from the moment you came into existence, you would be dead and damned because we are guilty and corrupt by nature from conception in our father Adam. By one man's disobedience, all of us became sinners and the wages for that sin is death. So it is good news that our Lord, our God, is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Well, one of the great testaments to that truth is actually found in Psalm 106. See, Psalm 106 is what we would call a historical psalm. That is to say, it's a psalm that lays out a large chunk of history with respect to God's Old Testament people. In fact, if you remember a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, actually, Brother Richard brought forth Psalm 105, another historical psalm. Psalm 105, if you remember, takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant, which God cut with Abraham around the year 2000 BC and stretches forward all the way until 1400 BC, 600 years until the time God brought his people, Israel, into the land of Canaan. So Psalm 105, Brother Richard, two weeks ago, covered 600 years of Old Testament history in 40 minutes. Psalm 106 covers 900 years. And so I'm not going to attempt to cover every bit of this psalm. I'm going to get to the point I'm going to get to and stop. And that's why I want to remind you about the continued theme as you hear this psalm preached, is that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. There are 900 years covered here. Psalm 106 takes us from the time when Israel was about to be delivered out of bondage in Egypt, which happened around the year 1440 B.C., all the, time, all the way to the time when Israel was about to be delivered out of bondage from Babylon, which happened around 540 B.C. 900 years of Israelite history contained in this psalm. And what the psalmist, by the way, dedicates most of his time to is showing us the abject failure of Israel throughout that period. The failure of Israel to walk in humble reliance and faith upon the Lord. Yet... With respect to all of that, the theme again emerges in the psalm as the fact that God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. In Psalm 105, two weeks ago, the grand theme was the providence of God and the way he protected his people, provided for his people, and even punished the enemies of his people. In Psalm 106, the theme is the patience of God with his disobedient people. Our God is a patient God. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so there are really three headings under which we're going to consider this psalm. The first heading I want you to notice, which will take us to verses 1 through 3, is what I'm calling a well-reasoned adoration. A well-reasoned adoration. The psalmist begins this psalm by calling his contemporaries, his peers, and every other subsequent generation of the people of God to praise the Lord, to adore the Lord. The psalmist doesn't want any member of the church of God to go the way of so many throughout the Old Testament history. So he begins with this strong call to adore the Lord. Look what he says in verses 1 through 3 of our text. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or, show, or can show forth all his praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Now, I love this. The psalmist not only calls us to adore the Lord, but he actually gives us the rationale for doing it. He gives us four well-reasoned arguments here in these opening verses on why it's a wise thing for the person of God to adore the Lord. And the first thing he says is we must adore the Lord because he's good. Because he's good. We adore the Lord because he's good. That's what he says in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he's good. The goodness of God refers to the perfection of his nature. God is perfect. He actually defines what good is. He has that right because he created good and he in, in himself is the definition of good. God is light as John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. He says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The nature and being of God is one of such absolute perfection that nothing is lacking in it whatsoever. Nothing is wrong with it, and nothing can be added to it to make it better. Back in the 17th century, Thomas Manton, a highly respected theologian and preacher, wrote this about the goodness of God. He said, God is originally good. Good of himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He's essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super-added quality. In him, it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's goodness is but a drop, but in God there is an infinite ocean and sea, or gathering together of goodness. He is eternally and immutably good. For he cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction or ought taken from him. God is good. His nature is good, his character is good, his work is good, his word is good, his son is good, his spirit is good, and there is no good in this world that compares to him. And he displays his unique goodness in all kinds of ways, doesn't he? God displays his goodness in his creation. He displays his goodness in his providence. He displays his goodness in his patience as he bears with sinners, as he gives time to sinful men and women, as he gives them time to repent and to place their faith in Christ. 
God shows his goodness. But he shows his goodness most illustriously in his redemption. Because that's the main way in which we get to see God's love. If you want to see the goodness of God, the clearest way of seeing that is, see it, is to see it in the sending and the sacrificing of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he sent into the world quite specifically to become the sacrifice that would pacify the wrath of God for all those who would trust in him. That is good. And so the psalmist says, in thinking about this, adore him because he's good. Secondly, he says, adore the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. We adore the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, this should be a phrase that we recognize. It's a phrase that we've come across a, a bunch of times through our study through the book of Psalms. The loving kindness of God, just to remind you as a definition, it refers to God's loyal, consistent, unchanging, and unwavering commitment to do his people good no matter the cost. Let me say that again. The loving kindness of God. This is the Hased love of God that we've talked about. It's God's loyal, consistent, unchanging, unwavering commitment to do his people good no matter the cost. And notice what it says there. His people good. That is all those people who God graciously saved in Christ. All those people throughout their lives and throughout all eternity. Listen to me. God will only do for them that which is for their good. Think about this. This means that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing could ever come into your life, hear me, that is not subservient to the purpose of working out for your good. Everything in your life, believer, and I mean everything from the time you were conceived to the time you breathed your last breath to go be with God in heaven, not only the pleasant things of this life, but the utter pains that you and I go through as people living in a fallen world, everything was ordained, arranged, and directed by God and is currently being disposed of by God to serve your good. See, the problem is, we've got to redefine what our good is. The very best for a human being, according to the scriptures, is to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the best thing that could happen to you. That's the best good that you have. Not to be wealthy, it's not to be healthy, it's not to have a lot of possessions, it's not to have a lot of children, it's not for you to not experience suffering at all. The very best for a human being in this life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Where do I get that? I get that straight from the Bible. I get that straight from Romans 8, 28 and 29. This verse we know so well, right? That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. See, the good in Romans 8.28 that he says is defined in Romans 8.29 as being conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if you are in Christ, think about the freedom that this brings. You can know that whatever comes about in your life has been ordained and directed by God to serve that purpose. Your own good. It is founded and grounded in God's loving kindness. And here's what's great about it. It never ends. It's a promise He will keep to you throughout eternity. Even in your glorification, it will be for your good. What a wonderful commitment. The loving kindness of God. Third, the psalmist calls us to adore the Lord because He is an inexhaustible subject of praise. We are to adore Him because He is an inexhaustible subject of praise. That's what's meant, by the way, in that question that we see in verse 2. Let me read that for you. Verse 2 of Psalm 106 says this, Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or can show forth all his praise? Nobody. Nobody. No angel no man, no perfected saint in glory. Because God is infinite and we are finite. The finite can never reach the end of the infinite. In other words, you and I, as God's children, can praise Him and praise Him and praise Him and never come close to praising Him for all that He is and all that He has done. He is an inexhaustible, unlimited, infinite subject of praise. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, put it this way. He says, those who praise the Lord have an infinite subject, a subject which will not be exhausted throughout eternity by the most enlarged intellects, nay, nor by the whole multitude of the redeemed, though no man can number them. Friends, in God, we have a bottomless, endless infinite subject of praise now if there were no other reason that alone is reason enough to adore the Lord to praise him to give adoration because he's the only subject in all of his own created universe that meets the qualification fourthly the psalmist says that we should adore the Lord because those who do so are blessed we should Adore the Lord because those who do so, if you do so, you are blessed. Verse 3 of Psalm 106 says, How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. That's a wonderful text. See, this is really talking about the joy, the contentment, the satisfaction, and the spiritual happiness that comes from walking in obedience to God. See, for those of us who are Christians, we know this to be a fact, that sin brings sorrow and holiness brings happiness. The world thinks that holiness brings sorrow and sin brings happiness. But friends, we ought to know the truth. Sin brings sorrow, holiness brings happiness. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
That means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know this by experience. You are most satisfied when you are walking in close communion with Christ. And let me just tell you, if you profess Christianity and you say that that's not the case for me, I, I've never really been satisfied in close communion with Christ, friend, I would check whether or not you really are a follower of Christ. Because in Him is true and lasting joy. In Him is understanding your purpose for creation, your purpose for existing. How could there not be joy just knowing His character, His nature, that the God of the supreme universe loves you, died for you, sent His Son to die for you? Friends, if that can't bring you lasting joy, I'm not sure how you can qualify yourself as a Christian. There is true satisfaction in holiness you are most dissatisfied as a Christian when you're not walking in close communion with Christ because you, you start to be tempted and consider the sins of this world as being maybe the things that will bring you happiness and you find out very quickly that sin as it always has always will be brings only destruction that it only brings dissatisfaction Yes, you can have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and, and yet be unhappy, but that comes when you're walking disobediently to Christ because sin brings sorrow and holiness brings happiness. So the psalmist says, seek to live a holy life if you want to be blessed by God, if you want to be joyful in the Lord. Well, friends, this, this is our well-reasoned adoration. God is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. He's an inexhaustible subject of praise, and those that adore him are blessed by him. Secondly and quickly, I want you to look at a faith-filled supplication. Not only a well-reasoned adoration, but a faith-filled supplication. We get this from verses 4 and 5 of our text. The psalmist in that text writes these words. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Now, what I want you to see is the great faith it actually takes for this writer of this psalm to pray this prayer. I mentioned earlier in the, the sermon that this psalm goes all the way through the Babylonian captivity and if I had time I would show you why I believe that this psalm was actually written by one who's in the Babylonian captivity but I don't have that time but certainly this guy was a captive of Babylon and yet I want you to notice what he prays at the beginning of the psalm with absolute confidence that God will show favor to his people notice what he prays he does not pray remember me O Lord if you show favor to your people he says, remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Another rendering, I believe the ESV version says, when you favor your people. See, that is what the man and woman, the boy and girl of faith says. They are one who prays in light of the promises of God. So you pray not ifs, but you pray whens. 
This psalmist knew the promises of God. God has promised throughout the Old Testament that his people would be taken into bondage, and that came true in Babylon. But 70 years after their captivity, they'd be released from bondage. In fact, Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, that, that very famous text in Ver, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, is in context of this Babylonian captivity. Look what it says. It says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. To bring you back to this place, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And he goes on to say this. This is interesting because it lines up perfectly with, with this psalm, verse 12 of Jeremiah 29. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Uh, this psalmist was very familiar with this promise. So he beseeches the Lord in faith. He prays not if you come and bless, but when you come and bless when you come and restore favor towards your people. And that is just how we are to pray as Christians. But in order to pray that, we've got to be familiar with God's promises to us. God promises that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will preserve you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't pray, Lord, if you preserve me. Lord, if I make it to heaven, then bless me there. I don't pray that way. Why? Because it's not standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of God would be, God, when you bring me to heaven. You see the difference? We don't pray ifs. We pray whens because of the standing promises of the word of God. That's a faith-filled supplication. We're going to spend the rest of our time together on this last point, third point. And it's simply this. A church-wide violation. This is a church-wide violation. This goes really from verse 6 all the way to verse 39, but we're going to stop at verse 23 tonight. Because in this section, the psalmist recounts Israel's long history of rebellion against the Lord, and yet not without acknowledging his own sin and the sin of his generation. I want you to notice how he begins this in verse 6. Look what he says in verse 6. We have sinned like our fathers... We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. What you're about to see, therefore, is, is not a remembrance of past sin, as we see often in the Psalms, but a repentance of present sin. This is an exercise of personal and corporate confession of sin. He is going to recount for us many examples of the sins of the fathers, and he's going to say, listen, we've done the same things. At the very least, the root of all these sins that I'm about to name lies in our hearts. And brothers and sisters, listen to me, church family, we belong to the same people. Can, can, I, just, can I just tell you this? God does not have two peoples. He does not have an Old Testament national Israel and a New Testament spiritual church. Old Testament national Israel is the church. 
New Testament spiritual church is Israel. He calls them that in the New Testament. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of Abraham, Paul says in Galatians 3. So you belong to Israel. Their history is church history. It's our history. Their sins, they're about to recount here and bemoan, do so, therefore, lie within every single heart here. And the first sin that he names is that of unbelief. That's the first sin that's listed here. Just plain old unbelief. Notice what he says in verses 7 through 12. I think I'm out of water. I got one sip left. He says this in verses 7 through 12. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea as the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make known his power. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left, and they believed his words. They sang his praise. This is the story of Exodus 14. We know the story very well. The people of Israel, after God had miraculously brought them to safety to the shore of the Red Sea by bringing down upon the Egyptians the vicious ten plagues, compelling Pharaoh to let the people of God go. When they came to the sea, they began to cry out to Moses in fear when they saw the Egyptians coming. And here's what they said, verse 11 of Exodus 14. Then they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They had already forgotten the wondrous works of God. They did not lay to their heart the water into blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the death of the firstborn. Not to mention the fact that the grace of God was given to them in the lamb's blood covering the door where God spared all of their firstborn. They did not take any of those wondrous works to heart. They were filled with unbelief. And yet what did the Lord do? He saved them. He saved them at the Red Sea. He saved them for his own name's sake that he might display his mighty power. So he divided the sea. He caused the sea, as we're told, to become like a desert, allowed them to walk through the other side. The Egyptians followed them in and he swallowed up the Egyptians with that same sea. Then the Bible says his people believed his words. Then they sang his praise. But I want you to notice the quick, swift transition to verse 13 because it didn't last long verse 13 says they quickly forgot his works they did not wait for his counsel, in other words it's always interesting, it actually goes together what we were talking about this morning, when they were in the process of beholding his miracles, they believed and as soon as those miracles were out of sight they disbelieved they were like Thomas, who said, who said to disciples, unless I see, remember what he said? Unless I see the marks in his hands, I will never believe. 
But what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. True believers in Christ still have remnants of unbelief in their hearts, don't they? See, whenever problems arrive in our hearts, in our lives, do we not oftentimes act as though we've never witnessed the helping hand of God? Even though God has manifested his faithfulness to us time and time again, we need to pray that same prayer that that man in the the New Testament book of Mark prayed. Where he said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief. Secondly, we see the sin of discontentment. We read about this story in Numbers chapter 11, but in our text, in verses 13 through 15, we see the sin of discontentment. It says, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. They were not content with what God had given them. They were not content with the manna. They wanted meat to eat, so God gave them meat to eat. He gave them quail, but as soon as he gave them the quail, while the flesh was still in their teeth, he sent a wasting disease among them. He gave them what they asked, but he sent them a plague as well. Friend, let me just... I just encourage you, beware when the Lord gives you over to your sinful desires. Because he does it. Because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not all he's giving to you. He follows it up with the hand of his discipline. That's what he does oftentimes in the life of his children. Jonah's a perfect example. Jonah wanted to flee from the Lord, and the Lord gave him a place to flee to. He gave him Tarshish, and he gave him a fish, and then he gave him a belly. Beware when the Lord gives you your sinful desires. These people, they were discontent. Their circumstances and provisions led them to be discontent. But let's ask this question. Where does a person find contentment in this world? You can only find it in the God of the universe through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13 hits it this perfectly. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And what is that? It's this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want you to know tonight that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if God has been gracious to you to unite you with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith, you have no reason whatsoever at any time to be discontent. In fact, think about it. What an insult it is to Jesus Christ for someone who knows Christ to be discontent. May God help us. Thirdly, we have the sin of jealousy, unbelief, discontentment, and jealousy. Verses 16 and 18 is where we find this. The Bible says, When they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram, and a a fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed 
the wicked. This story is in number 16. You remember this when the likes of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, they rose up against Moses and Aaron along with 250 chiefs of the congregation. And what did they tell Moses? What did they tell Aaron? They told him this. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Why do you raise yourself up above the people? Well, of course, we know that Moses and Aaron didn't do that. God's the one who raised them up. God's the one who appointed them to lead Israel. He's the one who made Moses his mediator. He made Aaron his priest. And that irritated these men so much so that they couldn't take it anymore. They were filled with jealousy, so they rose up against them. And jealousy, interesting enough, is a symptom of discontentment. Not only that, but it's the symptom of the next sin, and it's the last sin we'll consider this evening. And that's the sin of idolatry. This is probably the most famous instance of idolatry we see in the entire Bible, in verses 19 through 23. Very famous story. We read of the story in Exodus 32. It says that they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Verse 20, by the way, I don't know if you picked that out. Verse 20 of this psalm seems to be in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he's writing Romans 1. Remember in Paul, in, in Romans 1, 23, he's describing pagan idolaters. And he says that these idolaters, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So what we're supposed to see here in verse 20 is just how disgraceful the idolatry of the people of God was. They literally exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image of an ox that eats grass. That eats grass. Those words are there to underscore the creatureliness of the representation they made of the God of glory. And this was an offense to God. It was such an offense to God that the only thing that stayed his hand from destroying everybody was the intercession of his mediator, Moses. Idolatry, you know the definition of an idol. An idol is anything in your mind that replaces God. An idol can be an actual physical idol, such as a statue or an icon or a painting. Any kind of representation of God can be an idol. But I think idolatry goes much deeper than that. It goes much deeper than images because it's, ultimately it's a matter of the heart. An idol is anything that replaces God. So idolatry is any act of giving something other than God what ultimately belongs to God it is anything that you love more than the Lord anything it's anything that you serve more than the Lord it's anything that you desire more than the Lord that's a great sin it's one of the sins that makes the list here in Psalm 106 and so as we've looked at this church's violation. The many sins, I'm sure we can paint ourselves with them. I know when we read the Old Testament, we like to just think that that's, oh, that's just the nation of Israel. Certainly not me. I'm the Moses in the story. Friend, you ain't the Moses. I love you. You're the Israelites. Jesus is the picture of Moses. 
He's the picture of the intercessor that comes between God's angry hand with your sinfulness and his wrath. I want you to remember that, and yet I want you to remember what God says. Because in all of this, as we read, remember in verse 45, and he remembered his covenant. Despite the sinfulness, despite the wretchedness that the people of Israel gave themselves over to, he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. Friend, the Lord truly is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the main theme of this song. For those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer tonight is we would give him adoration that he and he alone so richly deserves. Your life would be marked by praise. I also pray that our petitions would be filled with faith Friends, we just have weak prayer lives. And part of it is because we don't know the Word of God. You know, I always hear this. You know, so-and-so, they, they may not really know theology well, but they're a person of prayer. Friend, if, if you don't know the Word of God, you're not a person of prayer. Can I tell you that? The two go hand in hand. The best thing you can pray is to be standing on the promises that God gives you in his word. And if you have no idea what God says in his word, then friends, there's oftentimes you don't know how to pray. I hope we have faith-filled prayers. When we see the, the promises in scripture, may we pray the when God, not the if God. Finally, may we guard ourselves against the sins that we've seen here this evening. Spirit, guard and protect in all of this, let's always remember the great truth about a God who's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Would you stand as we pray together? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that teaches us everything we ought to know concerning what to believe and how to live. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would guard ourselves against idolatry, jealousy, against discontentment, Lord, against unbelief. We do all this by seeking your face and trusting in you. Finding our all and all in the inexhaustible God who is and who is to come. I pray, Father, that by your grace this week, we would live all the more for your glory, dying to sin and living to righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.